right. In our third and final segment, we sometimes like to do obituaries, and I think we'll do at least in passing three. The first being the legendary Angelo Dundee, the trainer of Muhammad Ali, Sugar Ray Leonard, and many others. Dundee passed away this week at the age of 90. He was best known for being in Ali's corner for almost his entire career. But those in boxing also knew him as an ambassador for the sport and a figure of integrity in a sport that often lacked it. Noting boxing promoter Bob Arum, Angelo was the greatest motivator of all time. No matter how bad, no matter how bad things were, Angelo always put a positive spin on them. That's why Ali loved him so much. In his third fight against Joe Frazier, Bob Arum credited Dundee with persuading Ali to continue in the fight when he was ready to quit as it ended and... Who knows? We'll talk about that one with uh, Sean Mitten when he comes on this program next time because uh, Sean is our sports guy and Angie Dundee is a colorful character worth chatting about. He's been a feature on ESPN in the last few weeks, if you may have noticed, uh, as they've been airing, uh, for some reason, a bunch of Ali contests. Oh, Mr. Mill just informed me that Ali just turned 70. I'm sure that's the reason. At any rate, Dundee was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 1994 after a career that began in 1952. And to my knowledge, it was not in fact Angelo Dundee, but rather Drew Bundini Brown that coined the legendary float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. And we'll go over that with a mitten to be sure. Second obituary, we note the passing of veteran stage, TV, and screen actor Ben Gazzara. According to the LA Times, Gazzara found fame on Broadway in the 1950s, and I guess I'm really realizing how old I'm getting because I think of him as a TV star from the show Run For Your Life, which I'm sad to discover ran between 1965 and 1968. This was an NBC series about a successful lawyer diagnosed with a terminal illness who, said, who decides to live life fully. According to the IMDB website, in the first episode of Run For Your Life, Gazzara was told that he had one or two years to live, and he decides to do all those things he's never had time for. It was noted the program became a series of plays in which he meets a wide variety of people, from bums riding the rails, to gigolos, to orphans, and becomes a man who has little fear of death and everything but time. Now, this idea of a lawyer becoming a fulfilled and whole individual, I gotta admit, that really stretches credibility. But hey, we like to think in this world, anything is possible. Gazzara went on to star in uh, films such as The Killing of a Chinese Bookie in 1976 and Opening Night in 1977. And later on in Mr. McMillan's favorite comedy, The Big Lebowski. It was noted that he always brought a sense of great drama and a tremendous physical presence to his roles, often playing villains and morally corrupt characters. And speaking of morally corrupt characters... We come upon our third obituary of the day, that of Jonathan Idema. Frankly, I'd never heard of this guy, but when I, when I saw that he rated an obituary in both The Week and The Economist, I realized he warranted a closer look. He certainly appears to represent the worst of the world of mercenaries. And it's clear that people found him to be such a bad guy that <laughs> there's just a certain enjoyment in the writing of his obituaries. For example, to quote The Week, Jonathan Idema was such an egotistical fantasist that when he watched the 1997 movie The Peacemaker, he saw himself as the obvious inspiration for George Clooney's role as the dashing Special Forces soldier. 
IDEMA quickly filed suit against Steven Spielberg, the movie's producer, demanding a share of the proceeds. Like most of his claims, the suit was found without merit, and IDEMA was forced to pay $267,000 in legal fees. He apparently did enlist in the Army at 18 and served with the Green Berets until 1978, after which he set up a paintball business in North Carolina while moonlighting as an international security consultant. Idema claimed in a 1995 interview with 60 Minutes, and how he got in 60 Minutes, I'm not sure, that he discovered a black market in backpack-sized nuclear weapons in Lithuania, but refused to provide any proof to the FBI. He did, however, accumulate dozens of reckless driving, firearms, and assault charges in North Carolina over the years, and in 1994 was convicted of 58 counts of fraud and jailed for four years. But like many soldiers of fortune, he later found his way to war-torn Afghanistan. Apparently he arrived there in 2001 to make a documentary and recast himself as the mercenary Tora Bora Jack. Noted the week after a few Heinekens in the cocktail bars of Kabul, he would claim to be the leader of an anti-terrorist cell named Task Force Saber 7. But the truth was apparently that he and several other U.S. civilians were capturing and torturing Afghans whom they suspected of terrorism in their own private jail. According to The Economist magazine, he operated with impunity for a while after the Americans had ousted the Taliban in late 2001, noting that Afghanistan at that time was an adventure playground for thuggish American ex-servicemen employed or masquerading as security guards. Noting they hung around the Mustafa Hotel wearing wraparound sunglasses and camouflage fatigues. They drove about in big Toyotas and carried a small arsenal of weapons. And folks, this is why we love The Economist in this program. We can't resist quoting their writing. They said, They were not so much the dogs of war as the coyotes, dingoes, and hyenas. They noted that some of these people operated with the complicity of the American authorities who had contracted out many of the tasks once performed by soldiers. No wonder that on three occasions in 2004, Mr. Idema found it easy to con the NATO force into providing him with support for raids on compounds. He even conned the Americans into taking into custody a captured Afghan alleged to be a Taliban loyalist. Noted the magazine, he was nothing of the kind. When he was later found to be running his private prison along with a few friends, wherein they found eight captives, which were bound, hooded, and sometimes hanging by their feet, it was evident that Idema was trying to extract information that would lead to bounties. He said it had all been okayed by the Pentagon, even by Don Rumsfeld. He was nevertheless tried and given 10 years. Inexplicably, Afghan President Hamid Karzai pardoned, pardoned Idema just three years later. He then resurfaced in Mexico as a tourboat operator known as Captain Blackjack. Dressed in Arab robes, he would go on round-the-clock vodka and cocaine-fueled binges while claiming he possessed a superblood that would cure the AIDS virus ravaging his body. Frankly, I don't know if guys like Jonathan Keith, Jack, Edema are representative of the sorts of people that Blackwater is employing and the Pentagon is paying, and actually you and I are paying, to carry on military functions in Iraq and Afghanistan, but um, I have my suspicions. You do have to wonder when the president of the country that you've been tried and uh, convicted in personally pardons you seven years early that uh, some political connections must be involved. But I don't know. If any of you do know anything about this character, by all means, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. 
And and speaking of The Economist, again, we go back to that Atlantic article in the summer of 2009 talking about why The Economist is thriving while Time and Newsweek are fading. Well, maybe it's because the British still still take their journalism fairly seriously. If you pick up The Economist, you're going to get an article about mining in Mongolia or maybe business swindles going on in Salt Lake City, Utah, or how super PACs are altering the dynamics of American uh, horse races, or maybe an article about uh, the colony collapse disorder in honeybees, or maybe even an article on Carlos Slim, Mexico's sleazy telecom mogul. I can tell you this, their science uh, articles, which usually only run two pages, are usually pretty first-rate summaries of what's going on. Let's compare this to, say, Newsweek, America's version of a news magazine. I'm holding the August 3rd, 2009 cover in my hand, which has a balloon saying, the recession is over, perhaps a bit premature, along with a sampling of articles. Here's one on large yachts of the world, an article on how macho men are back with a vengeance and they're making the U.S. feel good again. An investigative piece, and this one, this one, folks, is truly shocking. It's about society and sex, titled Hotel Confidential. The subheadline is, it's the dirty secret about business travel. Many married men expect sex along with their room service, according to a Newsweek poll. But will the Strauss-Kahn scandal change the rules of the game? I don't know, but if you take the time to read this article, you find out that 21% of businessmen say they have thought about cheating on their spouse while away on business. I'm shocked. Shocked! In case you need to do any reading about crazy chick flicks, well, Newsweek's there for you. Or about a new website where you can ask a celebrity geek. And one querying, what's the best question to ask on a first date? The Economist or Newsweek? You make the call. But if you do elect to put your brain on suspended animation and read Newsweek, you may want to know that according to the good folks at that publication, when it comes to that best question to ask on a first date, you'll find there's a pretty good match of of, of people uh, who become a couple on the following questions. Would it be fun to chuck it all and go to live on a sailboat? 67% of people in a couple agree on that one. And just in case any of you ladies out there are trying to assess your compatibility, a la Newsweek with the host of this program, his answer to that would be yes, for about a month. After that, you'll want to slit your wrists. There's a 68% match on the question, have you ever traveled alone around a foreign country? My answer, why yes. But it kind of breaks down what are supposed to be the three most telling questions. 70% match on, do you prefer simplicity or complexity? My answer would be, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. (laughs) There's a 73% match up in, do you believe in miracles? To which I would have to say, oh, first define miracles. I mean, good things that happen unexpectedly? Yeah, sure. A 900-foot-tall Jesus that says he's going to call you home if you don't raise $8 million? No, 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 I don't think so. And finally, do you like scary movies? Apparently, people who hook up agree 74% on that one. Well, again, scary, like in The Shining? Yeah, good movie. Are we talking about our current crop of torture porn? I don't know. And I can't believe I've even gone this far into this whole digression. How about this item from our state capitol here? Assemblywoman Norma Torres, Democrat of Pomona, has announced that she plans to introduce legislation to protect the privacy of 911 medical emergency calls. She apparently worked as a 911 call operator for 18 years. 
This comes in the wake of actress Demi Moore being hospitalized last month after paramedics responded to a call for medical assistance at her home. Portions of the recording of her 911 call were released to the press last week. It seems reasonable to me that if you're a celebrity that your 911 calls shouldn't be used for public entertainment. Anyway, we need an upper to go out with, I think. All right, so let's return one more time to our archives. This was a list of merged books. For example, The Remains of the Day would be combined with The Day of the Jackal to give you The Remains of the Day of the Jackal. In that one, a formal English butler puts his loyalty to his employer above all else until he's persuaded to join a plot to assassinate Charles de Gaulle. Our other favorites, Jane Eyre Jordan. A plucky English orphan girl survives hardship to lead the Chicago Bulls to the NBA championship. Then there's Fahrenheit 451 of the Vanities, in which a 1980s yuppie is denied books. He does not object or even notice. One that's hard not to like, Green Eggs and Hamlet. Described thusly, Would you kill him in his bed? Thrust a dagger through his head? I would not, could not, kill the king. I could not do that evil thing. I would not wed this girl you see. Now get her to a nunnery. And my personal favorite, Ricky Contiki Tavi, where Thor Heyerdahl recounts his attempt to prove Rudyard Kipling's theory that the mongoose first came to India on a raft from Polynesia. And last but definitely not least, Paradise Lost in Space wherein Satan, Moloch, and Belial are sentenced to spend eternity in a flying saucer with a goofy robot, evil scientist, and two annoying children. And on that note, we are done, ladies and gentlemen. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to our good pal, Mr. Will Durst. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. In the weeks to come, we expect to bring you Dr. Ivan Schwab of UC Davis to talk about his fascinating book on how the eye evolved. Not you're in my eyes, how all eyes evolved. I don't, know how doc- I don't know how Dr. Schwab had the patience and time to write that book, but we're going to find out. And as promised, we'll talk sports with Sean Minton. He's always fun. Keep tuning in. 